From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 111, and today I'm joined by filmmaker Saul Pincus, whose film Nocturne you can find on iTunes and other various streaming services. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. All right, so we're sitting down to watch Used Cars. I'm Jeremy. I've not seen this film. I'm Saul. I've not seen this film either. But I've seen almost every Robert Zemeckis film but this film. I haven't seen, i got to be honest, I haven't seen a lot of the newer ones. I haven't seen uh, uh, Welcome to Marwin, the new one. Didn't see that. Didn't see The Walk. Haven't seen Contact. Oh, now there's a film you should see. I know. That was something that I was, uh, Mark Little and I were going to watch it together. And then he forgot and he went and watched it on his own. Uh, well, Wilner probably would see it with you. Norm? I can probably get Norm to watch it. Yeah. yeah I I'm so. sure if I put it up there, some, there's a bunch of people that, that would be interested in seeing it. It's, it's a very good film. And it was also, just as an aside, because I, I tend to do asides, it, it, it's a film that was developed by George Miller. Mad Max George Miller. Oh, that's interesting. And, and he left the project after several years. So it, if you can imagine, you know, what he's done with it, he did quite amazing things with it because he's quite a creative guy. Just like Zemeckis developed Cocoon. Yeah. And mm-hmm. was kicked How off he... Cocoon, essentially, because he had shot Romancing the Stone, but, but Fox did not like the way it was proceeding. And they said, oh, it's got editing problems. They didn't understand his rhythms yet. And it may have had some structural issues who knows but but they kicked him off film saying you're not ready yet you're just not ready and then he fell back on back to the future <laughs> yeah which i was mean the next thing I, wasn't that th- which was written years before and just rewritten yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah well it took forever to get made nobody wanted to make it right right and use cars may have been i don't know if back to the future was written when they made used cars but i don't know the order Essentially, Zemeckis was a Spielberg protege. Yeah, no, that I know. Yeah. I mean, this is his second film. Yes. His first, I also haven't seen, but Criterion's putting it out in, I'm hold in a month. Hand. Yeah, in a month or two. So I'll be first in line to grab that. Well, I saw it when I was, I don't remember when it was on TV, when I was 11 or something like that. And even eight, you know, I saw it when it was first broadcast on TV and probably bleeped. I don't know, um, but it was, uh, you know, I didn't really know what to make of it. And I think apparently reading, reading, you know, reviews these days that had come out back then, I was in the same boat with most critics. But I was a kid. I didn't have any cultural reference points. I yeah. didn't know who the Beatles were, really. Um, you know, I didn't get it. Um, but uh, so that would be a film to be interesting. But it's interesting because Zemeckis and Bob Gale, his, you know, his co-writer at the time, have always been kind of purveyors of pop culture through an interesting lens, right? They've yeah. always, that, that's their thing. And the other thing, I'm, the real reason I'm interested in seeing this movie too is I'm wondering if they had yet developed their their marvelous, almost kind of, you know, kind of like they're the best at like set, set up some payoffs in terms of their movies. I mean, Back to the Future being the best example of that, but almost always very clear setups and payoffs in their films. Yeah, yeah. And- and, just, and I'm just, it's, it's funny, just going through, I was just glancing through because I wasn't sure. I, I knew this was not his first film because I knew that the one that's coming out in Criterion is, but I wasn't sure what order it was. And I just quickly glanced through. And it's just like his filmography is, is kind of amazing in terms of just like, it's not necessarily all over the place because he always has his hand in, in something that's a bit of the fantastic. Like that's what his, his kind of thing is for the most part. Almost. Almost always. Yeah. Like, this one I don't think will be. Like I, I feel like this one's pretty yeah, grounded. I think so. This is probably a down-to-earth kind of movie, isn't it, Mark? But I don't know. Yeah, but it's like, but after this, you really start to, like, you look at, 
you know, Death Becomes Her and Force. 91, I think, wasn't it? You 91 know, or 93? Death, Death Becomes Her was after the Back to the Fu- third Back to the Future. Yeah, yeah. Death Becomes Her and then Forrest Gump and then Contact and then Cast Away. And then I think that's when he went into Animatedville. I well, he did be What Lies Beneath. What Lies well, Beneath. While well, he was waiting for waiting Cast for Away the, for Tom Hanks yeah, to lose, to lose weight. weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, uh, which I always thought was hilarious. Yeah, I, I never really... What Lies Beneath never really worked for me. Like, only that one bathroom scene with the tub, which is a wonderful example. I mean, set piece... The thing about... I, I should I should just say, like, growing up at that time, when I did, I was really the perfect age to not appreciate his first film, but to pretty much get into the groove of what his film... I saw 1941, which he, which he and Bob Gale had written for Spielberg, yeah. theatrically. Probably the weekend it came out. Um, I I don't remember liking it very much. I got <laughs> bored, and I've certainly seen it several times since. You know, it's L- the most delightful horrible Spielberg film I've ever seen. I, I bless you for watching it several times. We did that on the podcast, and that was one of my favorite episodes to record because we <laughs> did it at Norm Wilner's, and it was just us. It was me. Most I think everyone else had seen it, maybe, or it was like half and half. And most of it was just Norm poking me with bewilderment over what, how my brain was processing what I had just seen. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's that movie. Uh, I'm excited for this because, yeah, it's like for some reason I fell off and I got to go back and I got to catch up. Because what I also love about Zemeckis, later career Zemeckis, is how a lot of his moves always seem to be around like wanting to really play with technology. Yeah. You know, he's a real, like, he was one of the biggest first people, not the first people, I shouldn't say that, because a lot, but doing the, uh, the stuff he did in Back to the Future with uh, the... The Smoving spl- Splits? The Smoving Splits. Which was actually and, done first by Cronenberg and Dead Ringers. Yeah. Yeah, but, like, a half a year earlier, but on a far less uh, uh, fantastic uh, story. Yeah, no, I it absolutely, and, I mean, once again, to be a kid at the time, not a kid at that point anymore, but, uh, like, a teen, a late teenager at that point, and who already have been into visual effects, as one was, if one liked all those films, and to follow that, follow the emergence of the technology. It was just growing and growing and growing and growing constantly, and to follow the splits across, because you're watching a photochemical print. Yeah. To follow the, you could some, occasionally you see something weird about it, but for the most part... ILM does such a wonderful job of convincing you. The thing about Zemeckis, too, is he became very interesting to watch for a certain period. I would say probably these early films are very interesting. Again, I haven't seen, of course, the film we've seen today. But but I lo- Romancing the Stone is a very interesting film mm. and, very, and very wonderfully refreshing. It came out the same year, a few months earlier, just like Matrix did before, a few months earlier than Star Wars Episode One. Romancing the Stone came out a few months before uh, Indiana Jones. Uh, and, no. and, the, and the Temple of Doom, and kind of you know, although I I can rewatch Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom because it's a it's on many levels, not all levels, a brilliant piece of filmmaking. It is also racist and a lot of other things. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I have a problem with it. But and even then, I had a problem with it. But 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 point being that it kind of it superseded in a not a not exactly the same genre, but it sort of superseded and and and, and bested. Uh, the films that were coming out just a couple months later. So it's it's interesting because you know you look at that and you and Back to the Future and that whole trail. Uh, yeah, they were all technologically interesting, but also I saw a quote and Roger Rabbit. Let's not forget Roger Rabbit. Oh, no, Roger Rabbit. Three three years on Roger Rabbit. Like that was just I can only imagine what it was like to in that time to work to to sort of put your faith. In a movie like that, to hope that it would turn out the way it turned out. Oh yeah, and it is very, very, very watchable. In fact, it is. I think I saw it five years ago. Now. I'm not not having seen it for like 15 years, and is it is better. Yeah, I watched it with Ephraim a couple of years ago, and he, we both just loved it. Yeah, I think it's better than when I. I mean, it 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 ages better. I, I really do think so, and. Uh, in part because we don't see a lot of detective-style stories today, and the 80s were still kind of ripe with kind of revisiting that genre not so well all the time, most of the time. Um, the other thing I was going to say, the quote that uh, is interesting is this. So used cars probably represents the last time, I'm guessing, I wonder if it does, that's the thing, uh, that Zemeckis uh, would sort of maybe... 
make a film that wasn't playing a bit down to an audience. And I don't mean that that Back to the Future was necessarily, um, but he started, he was quoted saying somewhere, something along the lines of a movie should be like a Big Mac. It'd be like McDonald's. I never heard this quote. That is like, I, I, that is just the essence of the quote. It's not the exact quote, but it shows his point of view. In terms of just, it should be pleasing. I think pleasing, easy to digest. Um, <laughs> well, those things are not easy to digest, so. No, no, but you know, they're not. Well, no, once you get, they get past the, the taste buds, you know, forget it. But then you're, <laughs> then you, then you, then you're, then then you've taken off. You're in for the flight, whether the turbulence is is right, is you know, yeah. smooth or not. It's the flight is smooth or not. But the, uh, but no, there's definitely definitely something which I think is indicative of his personality and and what he what he started to do and the the projects he would take because he never again really until recently took us took on a project which sort of put you in a kind of serious vein. Forrest Gump was about as close as he got to it. Um, you know, just the idea of seeing characters in his movies that would, you know, the notion of sexuality, as an example, other than as a sort of canned conservative version of sexuality, didn't really show up in his movies af- as of a certain point. Well, other than the, the fact that Back as, to the Future is a incest. wild idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other than that, it's still a very conservative style film and very much of the 80s. So anyway... Like I say, there are a number of things that don't show up in his films for a while, and now in his latest picture, that since he's come back from the world of animation, seem to show up almost as a vengeance. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. No, I, I was really excited for Welcome to Marwin, and then the reviews went across. I was like, oh, maybe I'll just wait for Netflix. Yeah, I was really excited for it because I thought, oh, this is probably him in his element. I mean, conceptually, and you know, and sure, great, good. This is the kind of film that probably. And, you know, that's probably what everyone thought. Or, you know, this is the kind of film that would be perfectly suited for him. But then, you know, it's sort of like watching Spielberg try to do a film like this now. It's yeah. not... I just saw Ready Player One. Did you, have you seen Ready Player One? Oh, I've seen it many times. Okay. So do you You obviously like it. Yes. Yeah. I quite liked it. I yeah. quite liked it. And my son loved it. So he right. I've rewatched it with him a few times. Well, I, I bring it up because I saw it just last week. I missed it in theaters. And, and I it was playing a while. I just missed it. And... Um, I think I've only not seen War Horse of everything Spielberg's done, and I didn't make it through BFG. I like BFG on Netflix. I just didn't make ah. it through. I was like, I should try again. But um, uh, you know, I used to be there. I used to be the kid who was there all yeah. the time. And my, my only two black holes are Spielberg or War Horse. So you and I should do that at some point. Yeah, and um. And Bridge of Spies, I still haven't gotten around to. Bridge of Spies was good. I saw that with a friend of mine who reviews uh, for a network, and he's a film reviewer, and 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 he had passes. And I happened to be in New York the day. Oh, nice. So I was there for my film in New Jersey, and he's like, "Come in, we got you know Bridge of Spies. We'll go see it." I liked it a lot. I didn't, you know, I a lot of late career Spielberg films. And this is my point. To me, the fantastic. Uh, is not necessarily something he does especially well anymore. He does conceive very well, and that's where I liked Ready Player One. I thought, for me, I thought Ready Player One was, other than the ending, which is sort of, you know, it's sort of very standard for this period in his career where there are almost multiple endings and you just don't need to end the film this many times, nor is the ending particularly remarkable. It almost seemed like Goonies, but for now. In a way, you know, like there yeah. were aspects of the film. I can see that. Yeah. yeah. I just, what I really liked about it was watching him as like, it felt like him as a kid in a candy jar in the sense that would always, I always really pay attention to now when I rewatch Spielberg is just his use of, of these amazing wonders. Mm-hmm. And now he's got a technology that allows him to technically go on forever because mm-hmm. he can just like marry pieces together and just watching how he incorporates that into this, this world. Uh, he used to do that. I, I remember it was probably five, six years ago, maybe a little, even a little longer. Uh, someone did a video essay on Spielberg's yeah. Wonders. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was every frame of painting did one. It was fascinating, and I did, and I, I used to study those. You know, going back a long, long time, that was one of the things that in theaters I was was amazed. I was like, why does this guy? Even I remember, I don't remember what it was. It was either before ET or after ET. What is it about this filmmaker who who makes these films that 
that his stuff seems more alive? What makes it seem more alive? What are the, what are the things he's using? And obviously, story and ideas and everything, and character and everything comes first. But just in terms of his use of of, of light-angle lenses, when he wasn't shooting scope, usually I think there was a 27mm or the 24mm, and how he was always bringing faces to camera and away from them. And of course, you've seen the video I say now. Yeah. But it, it was a study that was, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, I think we were all kind of amazed by that. But it wasn't just that. It was also the way he would cut and, under, and overcut action and, and, and dialogue and... Yeah, how that material would be. But for that, but I think what makes this one special is that they don't call attention to themselves the way that like a wonder right. in Goodfellas does. That's right. Or those where those are like really showing off and you notice them, the spirit ones are invisible. Because his editing is so so good. And I think that's the thing. His technique has only gotten better. Um and Ready Player One's interesting because the film I mean here we're talking about that's Zemeckis, okay. but but Ready Player One is an interesting film. The Zemeckis Cube is in Ready Player One. It, that's it, right, it, it is. In. And there's lots of Zemeckis in, in there in terms of the that kind of rock and roll kind yeah. of crazy energy. Um particularly doing quite well with the DeLorean. But the uh uh we were just talking about sort of Zemeckis just just talking about his use of I think editing is really something which 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 propels his films in as much as his camera technique. He's really still quite capable of that. Now, um, uh, but yeah, it's it's a weird late career movie for him to do. And yet it's not because you look at everything he's doing now, he's just sort of filling, checking off his list that he started when he was young. I mean, you saw 1941. The best thing about 1941 is what? Nothing. Like really. It was no, one scene. Oh, oh, oh the... the I, I love the bit when he drives through the paint factory in the tank. Okay, the, it's a but that's just a bit. The dance hall scene. I call that a bit. Yeah, the dance hall scene. Yeah. What's he doing now? West and, Side Story. Yeah. He's always wanted to do a musical. His material was always set up for that. The closest he ever got that was the Bugsby Berkeley opening of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yeah. Which is amazing. And you sit there watching it. At one point, you know, they go down, then they go back up. And you're like halfway through the shot before you realize he's reversed that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, but you I'm know. fascinated to see what he does with West Side Story. Fascinating yet very kind of worried. Yeah, because I'm like, really? It feels like a weird move for him. What do you think you but can do? I yeah. will watch it. Of course, I will. Of course, we'll watch it. Of course, we'll watch it. And then the the, the other, but but Ready Player One it, it, to just conclude that was that he has been playing video games since the start of video games. He was, do you know, the story yeah, yeah, where he yeah. was playing the Star Wars game. I don't know the you Star know? Wars game, but I know so Atari. Been... Atari. I think it was Atari. They did that made the Star Wars arcade game, which again I'm young enough to remember playing about twelve dozen times that summer of uh, what it was eighty three or whatever it was. So he's he's playing this, the arcade game, you know, because they're still developing it at, at Atari, I think, or at Lucasfilm, wherever they were developing it. And he was like, he was like, you know what? He said, it's great, but where's the force button? Because you can use the force. So they put in a force button for him, but he was always into like pinball and into and into early computer games and stuff like that. So for him to do Ready Player One is not at all surprised because always wanted to. Oh no, I felt know. like it was a great match for him. Yeah, yeah, it didn't surprise me at all. But and that like seems to be his rhythm now. His rhythm is like something for his inner child and something for his adult. And so for him to go yeah. from He's like it. well, yeah, but yeah, <laughs> there was like Bridge of Spies and then BFG. Uh, the post, yeah, uh, Ready Player One, and it's like it's this common like the rhythm he goes back and forth to, yeah. And so now we get theoretically we get West Side Story and then Indiana Jones Five, yeah. Theoretically, we'll see. We'll see about five. I don't know about yeah. that. Anyway, well, back to Zemeckis. Yeah, and I think we should just watch the movie now. Sure. All right, I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Let's all go to the lobby. All right, we just finished. <laughs> uh, yeah, you uh, you compared it to another film that we talked about during the opening, well, just before the movie, just be- just as the movie was finishing, just seconds ago. Yeah, I was like, gee, that reminds me of 1941. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, where do you start? It's, it's very. You know what the, it caught me from the beginning of the picture is that. It kind of hit and miss in terms of taste. 
And I don't think taste Ooh. was necessarily. I think a lot point. more, a lot more missing. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting. Is that I when is it, what year is it? this movie? Is about 1980, right? It's exactly 1980. You a lot. One of the last times we did this, you hadn't seen Airplane. Then you saw Airplane. Yeah. I don't know what you what you thought of Airplane, but there's a taste thing going on that's very specific to the period. I will. S- say having now seen airplane it holds up a lot more than this movie does sure yeah but it, but it's also you know playing to sort of counterculture stuff at the time yep. the 70s the kind of like let's throw in as many as many swear words as we can you know let but but with this i i'm trying to think of another film where they kind of went so off the mark in terms of character stereotypes and th- and you know just sort of like you know, I mean, I I don't want to start really. I just don't know where to start. It's yeah, really not. It's so great. flawed. Oh, it's, it's yeah. not. It, not only is it not great, it's yeah. bad. Yeah. But let's talk about that. I mean, I would just. I mean, there's there's plot problems all over the map. There's just. I mean, there the only character I liked in the whole movie. Was Jack Warden's other character who died? Who dies? Yeah, because he's the only moral character in the entire movie. Yeah, everyone else is a terrible. Even the judge, that judge. We'll get into the judge, but every every other character in the movie, and the only other character that is somewhat moral is the daughter. And by the end, her her big arc at the end is that she learns how to be immoral. Yeah. But that's that's true. I don't. Th- I think one of the film's big problems it can't decide whether it wants to err on the side of forget morality, reality versus cartoon versus just being a cartoon. It's very often for little spits and you know spurts and stuff. It's very happy just to be a cartoon. Yeah, I think you're right. There's definitely tonal issues there. Um, but I mean, it's great. It just shows early on he's got his cartoony. Even even at this point, which was the first time he probably saw any stunts in, a, in his movie, it's pretty taut, you know. It's, yeah, I mean, there's big stuff going on, but it's even it's funny. It's like you mentioned the cartoonery. I, I made a a, a note of uh, when we were watching it that Jack Warden's fake mustache is like half falling off in one of the shots. Yeah, it's not even that. The brothers weren't different enough. That was part of the problem to me. I mean, I think you're supposed to know you have very short time. To know who they are. Yes, they're playing different characters, but visually they're not different enough. Oh, I thought that was fine. I mean, when he, when he's got the big mustache, the guy slipped back. I thought it was it was enough for me. Well, he breathed like five or six times when he was supposed to be dead in the car. Did you notice that? Yeah, there's yeah. all there's, there's some some filmmaking. Yeah, like well, there's that one shot that's completely out of focus. That yeah, one for wide a shot. Long time. I, well, no, well, no. You know what those were? There was a few times. There's a few points in this movie where they had to use the sound, the standard definition master. Those uh, aren't. Those aren't. Those, the shots aren't out of focus. The shots you're talking about, they're out of focus. They're definitely some out of focus. They're some out of focus shots. There's a, they're over over uh, the female lead in the bar uh, uh, for the longest time. Well, there's like, a lot of just uh, single shots, like oneers, where some of the, one of them's out of focus half the time, the other one's out of focus yeah. the other half the time. Yeah, but like seriously, so and yeah. and, and you kind of wonder like Zemeckis, like when he saw the dailies, how angry could he have been? But they still elect, they selected not to reshoot. So yeah, you know. I, I it's and it's also you know what the most amazing thing about this movie is to me is that Zemeckis goes on from this and becomes a good filmmaker. Yeah, well, there were four years. That's fair. I think I think also he I think you know this was a, a this was a failure. This movie was a a box office failure. I mean. Zemeckis was Spielberg's protege, yeah. really, his directing protege. Zemeckis had gone to film school in Chicago. He he made, you know, he did I Think I Want to Hold Your Hand was his first film uh, that was exec produced. And that was least pushed by. And this was clearly John Milius, you know, was co-producing. This was done, obviously, as part of the deal to do 1941 or or just after 1941. This one comes out, which, they wrote, which Bob Gale and Zemeckis wrote. And has a lot of people who showed up in, I don't know about all, no, I want you to hold your hand had Wendy Joe, Wendy Joe Sperber as well and a few others and Eddie Deason and a few others. But there's a lot of the cross-pollination of casts uh, between uh, yeah. I want to hold your hand, uh, 1941 and this. But yeah, I mean, he you basically, can, you, what I'm saying is Spielberg supported him, the successful filmmaker supports him, and then nothing happens. 
and four years passes and he does Romancing the Stone and that's successful and hugely successful. And, you know, yeah, then you get back to the future. But it's amazing that, uh, yeah, because you definitely you can see how the same writers anyway did 1941. They did this because it's the same kind of mess. It's a comedy that's not funny. That's right. uh, That's, you know, blatantly offensive in, in, in offensive in ways that aren't even interesting. It's just like, I mean, we'll just talk about the, mis- the blatant misogyny throughout the movie. Oh, yeah. That whole, yeah. here's, like, just how many times is there a guy, there's at least two very obvious cases of, of a guy just grabbing a woman's breast, and one yeah. of them is the female lead. Yeah. It's that guy that's selling the cars at the end. it just kind of goes, and it just kind of goes, and it, it's, it's meant, you're meant to take it as humor. Every time, you're meant to take it as, as funny. You know, I mean, the other thing, too, is that the guy who's doing it, we want to talk about a double whammy. So the guy who plays the supposedly Mexican dealer yeah. is Alfonso Aral. Now, Alfonso Aral, I think he was in The uh, the Wild Bunch. He's the guy, is it The Wild Bunch I'm thinking of? I just saw Western? it recently. I think you're right. Yeah. And then he later becomes, he he's sort of doing that character. And then he becomes a director, right, in the in the 90s, doing, I think, like, Water for Chocolate is his film. Okay. And there's a couple other films. He did, oh, uh, what was the other one with Keanu Reeves? Bad movie. Uh, Walk in the Clouds. Um, but, but here he's doing a character which, you know, is, so, is such a stereotype. And so the stereotype... They just, they seem to build on the stereotypes. They don't just use a stereotype just for one moment, slip it away, it's a one joke thing. You know, it's sort of, you know, he's he's a stereotype at the beginning of the picture. He's then a stereotype who has a lot of these things to offer them. Then he's, then again, the next time you see him, he's grabbing the female lead's breasts just because. Grabbing his crotch all the time. Grabbing his crotch all the time. It's like, it's like, take it, you know. But it's not just him. I mean, Kurt Russell grabs that one, that poor woman in the middle of this commercial that's airing during a giant football game yeah. as her dress whipped off, yeah. and the cam operator can't stop but zooming in on her breast the and whole they time. Spend at least a minute during which you're supposed to believe that Kurt Russell still has his tongue down the female lead's throat. No, different scene. That's a different scene. That's yeah. the other commercial. Let's get the into those commercial. commercials in a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Kurt Russell grabs her breast at the end. Yeah. To add insult to injury, the whole thing. The whole commercials thing makes zero fucking sense. Because here's what happens. We're <laughs> supposed to believe that this first commercial, which is a giant clusterfuck, we've got the guy swearing throughout the commercial. Yeah. He is uh, ogling this poor naked woman. Yeah. And then this woman's being felt up at the end. We're meant to believe that this commercial inspired the lot to become full the next day. But the lot is filled with families. Yeah, that's what we're meant to believe. Like, yeah. We're meant to believe that. And then we're meant to believe the second commercial, yeah. which is now made by Jack Warden's character, yeah. but is still showing them being sexist, misogynistic, with strippers on dancers on top of the cars. We're meant to believe that that turns people off. Yeah, and then somehow the yeah, third commercial, which is yeah. murdering people yeah. and blowing cars up, is supposed to turn people back on. The, the logic, there's zero logic to these commercials and how they affect the public. Yeah. And they also know that it's like, hey, when we do this commercial tonight, there's going to be a ton of people in a lot tomorrow. They have no fucking clue yeah. if this, these things are going to work. The, the, the thing about Bob Gale and Zemeckis, is they really are very, they love to go for the joke. But they never strung them together properly until Back to the Future, right? I mean, Back to the Future is a bunch of jokes strung together through a story. It's not just jokes, but my point is that they're, it, it makes tonal sense. They never quite got it right yeah. before that, right? No, yeah. and it's almost like it's like they, be, you know, that you know, Back to the Future is what I consider, you know, a masterpiece, it's the ultimate. Yeah, no, and we, yeah, and you look as like, how is it possible that I guess they just honed, they got better, and that's like, so. Keep at it, kids. You know, it makes me feel better as a filmmaker to go, oh, great. You're allowed to stumble a little bit and, and fear your stuff because, you know, well, it, the greats certainly did. Well, it's certainly right. So it's certainly true that not every TV movie Spielberg made was great. Sure. Or every TV episode, though quite a bit of his stuff was, for the time, quite amazing. Um, you know, but... Yeah, it's sort of like it's 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 just it's so hard to, to kind of 
like 1941, it's such a mess. There's yeah. so much to, but you're just, you just sort of, you know, just a tip of the iceberg that you're just talking about. Those there's, there's little things I really like. The opening shot I loved, that really great notorious. push in, and then it lands yeah. on the, the dominator and it gets spun back. It's, it's Hitchcock. It's a, but it's just, yeah. a, it's an amazing, well, it's also the a great, um, the um, Orson Welles, the, um, the big giant long shot. Touch that, of evil. Touch of evil, yeah. Yeah. But this one, like that, that they get pretty tight on that odometer. Like that's yeah. a, that's a pretty yeah. amazing yeah. shot. But already, really. it's much easier to do than it was forty years sure, before this, sure, sure. because you know, and it's exterior, and so you can stop that in the lens a lot. But like better. that, I liked. I liked pretty much all the jokes with the dog were great. Yeah, I like yeah. those. Um, but oh my god, there's so much, and those are stretches. Like like Kurt Russell. Uh, what had he done up to this point? So in his Kurt Russell had played Elvis, which was funny because he just sort of gives a nod to the Elvis lampshade. Yeah. But he had played Elvis. He had done what else? He had done. I'm trying to. Think. He did that for John Carpenter. He would then the year after this, he would be Snake Plissken in okay. Escape to New York, and then start a run of you know, yeah, yeah. the thing, and 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 show up in a couple of well, three really awesome movies, but um, not too. Well, I think he was still trying to find... You know, Kurt Russell was the child actor. Yeah. I think still, he was still trying to find his groove. Yeah, and he's charming in this, I guess. But he's just... I mean, you're supposed to also believe that this guy wants to be a senator. I guess his goal is to be a senator so he can get um, bought out by people. So people can bribe him. Like, that's his life's ambition. <laughs> Our hero. But the thing is, is that I... I thought they were trying to do something with that early on, and then I thought, you know, well, no, it just ends up being it's just a joke. It's just a plot device. I mean, you know, another thing this film reminds me of in terms of the audience, I th- they probably thought they were trying to hit. Do you see the Blues Brothers? Yeah, I haven't seen the Blues Brothers since I was a kid, but I've seen it. But the essence there is you've got these sort of characters who are actually really sweet, but they do all these amoral things. Yeah, and I think. That really, I think they were trying to go for an audience that was already built for them. Whereas Blue Blues Brothers was just before this. Yeah, the seventies. I grew up in the seventies mostly as a child, but I do remember that. And so this is not out as outlandish. It's just not funny. No, and that's the problem. And it doesn't work, and it doesn't have that sweetness that the Blues Brothers, that, that Belushi. No, you don't really love has. these characters. That, that's that's the, problem. the problem. I mean, I just made a movie where you've got two people doing unlikable things the entire movie. Right. But I like to think that they come off as charming in their own way, and you root for them. Movie plug. The name of the yeah, movie is? The Go-Getters, yeah. Okay. And so, uh, I'm, and that's where I think what you're saying about this idea of like tonal issues, where it's just like, just go for it. If you're going to do that, go for it. Mm-hmm. But know how to do it, and, 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 and really find a way, because I found that like... The uh, what is it? Jeff is the guy that's superstitious. Yeah, and we're also meant to believe that but he's like this incredible. Yeah, that I didn't buy. I didn't buy him at all. But also, the stuff that's going on with the football game. Like we're meant to believe that the stuff that's happening in that bar yeah. is meant to actually change the course of this football game. Yeah, that superstitions actually exist. And then at the end of the movie, we're meant to believe that Kurt Russell talks to him out of believing in them. Yeah. So there's no rules to this world either. No, and there's no unified kind of message to the film that that, that yeah. they do to believe. Because I thought the issue with the paint being washed off wasn't the red; it was that they're going to see it was a fire department car. Yeah, and I like, thought you that can't was it. sell those. That's just right. That's exactly right. It, the, as an audience, I don't get some of the things in the film. Like first of all, he's a he's a Lothario, right? You get the impression he's Lothario, Lothario and yet he's just so. He's just so incapable of some very basic things that would preclude him from being a Lothario. Like, I just, I, I, didn't, I didn't get it. Can we talk for a second, though, about, okay, so the rampant misogyny, but the question I have is, why is the female lead wearing... No bra? No bra. At the end? In a, in a, in a kind of, at the, at the la, in the action, major action sequence of the movie, clearly uh, displaying... Uh- uh, because it's 1980. I'll, no, I'll, I'll go no. one step further. She's wearing the same outfit that she was in in court. Yeah. <laughs> Think about that. I just don't like. I just I sat there going. I don't understand. And this is what I was saying earlier about Zemeckis being sensitive to sexuality in his films. And a lot of his hit films, it's an aspect of it. 
But you don't get stuff like that. I figure he just got his hand slapped so hard from this that he never did it again, really. Possibly. Because you think, I mean, all I can think of is, is that, what year is Porky's? Oh, yeah. Porky's is uh, 81, I think. So, so it hadn't come out yet. Absolutely. But it's like, but there it's are... the same period. But there are other movies that are doing this kind of, that kind of thing and doing it more Animal, success. Animal House. Animal House. earlier. Yeah, Ooh. sure. Animal, Animal House. House is, exactly. So Animal House, again, as they say, as we say these days, it's not, you, it, it's not cool to say it was of a period and it was okay. And I'm not saying it was okay, but it was definitely of a period. And even like, what, what year was Revenge of the Nerds? Oh, Revenge of the Nerds is much later. Much that's later. Like, yeah. And that, I mean, that's, again, that's another movie that's got a, 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 it's a hinge of a scene is, is kind of a rape scene in a way. Yeah. Uh, at least very non-consensual sex. No, oh, not, it's not non-consensual. Whole... It's consensual, but she doesn't know who it is. Right, and, then and she's, it's creepy, it's, and it's anyway. weird, and then the whole, th- and then there's the whole sequence where they plant, they go into the house, and they plant the, uh, the, uh, uh, the video camera. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, all those things. So yeah. there's just the, it's so like there's just this. I'm sure someone's got a list on on the internet that you can find of just these movies that, wow, they really, and in these are movies that I grew up with, and I, you know, and they, to some they extent, in. Well, like like Revenge of the Nerds and yeah. Animal House, yeah, and that kind of stuff, and it's yeah. like you know, and but yeah, it's it's really really just watching this for the first time, not knowing any of that stuff was coming, you know. I think we both had a, a oof right after. Well, yeah, because it's also because these guys have been successful after this on a certain brand and been so successful. I mean, you can you can make the argument that that in the eighties. And even after that, Zemeckis was the closest thing you could get to a Spielbergian movie. Family filmmaker, yeah. Totally. Not just family, but just sort of, it just be just the, the sense of magic, the sense of the way you could rely on on, on him, on them, on that yeah. team. And it was very much, craft-wise, a very, very much the same team throughout a lot of, a lot of that period in this film. Filmmaking. So it's just, it's incredible. Yeah, he to- it was definitely a totally take stock, get my shit differently together. This is not the kind of film we're going to make anymore. I mean, those were all the films, the films that, that I think on I Want to Hold Your Hand is probably sort of madcap in the same kind of way. I'm fascinated to see it now. Yeah, Especially because Criterion's putting it out. So I'm hoping that it doesn't have this kind of stuff. Oh, I don't. wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think it Criterion would be. Wouldn't. I don't remember it yeah. very well, but I don't think it's this movie. I mean, it's, it's interesting in that, and we had kind of had a very similar conversation on the episode we did for 1941. So go back and listen to that. It's an earlier episode of the podcast. Um, where what's interesting and I think is essential about this film existing is very similar to how 1941 had to exist for Spielberg to do something like Raiders Next, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like he needed to get this over-the-top thing out of his system because he was at a point in his career where it's just he could do whatever he wanted. He could spend whatever he wanted. Spend whatever he wanted. So he needed to get, he needed a little bit of failure, have his hands slapped, so that in the next one he could show a little bit of restraint and do some things that were just more inventive. And I think you've got, this is a great film that just probably put made Zemeckis really take stock of who he, who he was as a filmmaker at the time, who he wanted to become as a filmmaker. And so without this film, you don't get the Zemeckis who makes Back to the Future. Yeah, no, I don't think... I don't think it's, so. a nece- it's a necessary step. You just reminded me again of the misogyny in 1941 and the... And the racism and... And the racism and, and, the, racism and, <laughs> and loads of stuff... But but you just reminded me again of like that of the of the whole play on the Susan Backlund swimming scene, and she's she's she. she That's the most clever thing in the movie is him him ripping off his own movie. And then you know she's just up there, but everyone's gawking, and he goes Hollywood, and you know that actually made I do remember being in the theater that actually made a lot of people laugh. Oh, I'm sure. But the but but the but but I'm just reminded of that and reminded of that sort of uncomfortable sexuality mixed with mixed with racism, which sort of or misogyny or both, which is part and parcel of a lot of the filmmaking at that time. Yeah. Whether it's Zemeckis and Gale with these as these examples or, or others. And uh yeah, we were we were definitely baked. 
I'll say it's like, you know, on this podcast, we've done a ton of comedies from this era and just slightly after us, slightly before. And, you know, it's very hard to find any of them that don't have some kind of yeah. racism or misogyny. Uh, it's just part of what people were making jokes about at the time. Yeah. Drug you know? jokes, too. And a lot of that. Yeah. That's like, just it. And I'm sure in 30 years from now, people are going to look at our era and, and find something to poke at. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just, that's the nature of comedy is like you've got to be pushing something. But it's just at the same time, it's just like, wow, it's, it's just amazing. I'd love to to see if Zemeckis has talked about used cars recently and talking about how he, how he oh, feels about this it. Is a, now I want to go back and I want to and I want to check out all. all the, and usually I just heard him say, oh, I just didn't work and this and that. You know, I guess he hadn't found his, his quarter pounder or his Big Mac yet, but... I, but you can see he's kind of trying for that here. Can you? Yeah. Sure. I yeah. mean, he's I, he's definitely simplifying with the, with the cartoon aspects of it. Yeah. I mean, there's some interesting things going on in terms of like that whole end sequence. If it just didn't make a lick of sense, is still great with the mm-hmm. you know them getting all the cars and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of great stuff going on there, concept wise. And you can see how there's a lot of shots he redoes later on. Yeah. And there's a lot of these flourishes that, you know, find themselves in other work. Yeah, well, I'm Back to the Future 3, but with a train. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of the that. Train. And he's also learned how to shoot a car with this a little bit, and then in terms of lenses, but then also in some ways just very not dynamically. So there were improvements later. Yeah, there's yeah. not... There's, the visuals here are, are between, like, you know, impressive, nice shots and just really master scene technique. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's uh, there's not a lot going on there, but it's also you know it's a movie that's contained. You know, it basically takes place on two neighboring car lots, and then it's got a bunch of little set pieces within that. They destroy a shitload of cars, which is fun to watch, I guess. Yeah, but not nearly as interestingly or with as much satisfaction emotionally as say the Blues Brothers. Well, it's just you don't buy it. you don't like the logic of any of this stuff. Doesn't make any sense. Just and it starts off with. You know, Jack Warden's one character literally trying to murder his brother by giving him a heart attack. Where are you going to go from there? And this is the this is the problem. I'm trying to think of. I think Death Becomes Her is one example. I know that Zemeckis did a couple episodes of Amazing Stories. Yep. And one of them was just so macabre. It was just so distasteful. I think I know that the next time this would happen to him theatrically, the and, that I seem to remember was Back to the Future 2, which I think is a brilliant movie. Back to the Future it's, 2 was one of my favorite movies as a kid. Brilliant, but it is tonally a bit weird a couple of times in a way that doesn't completely work that I think may have worked had they had a chance to spend more time working on it while not also shooting 3. But that's... Point being, though, I think that would be the next time you would encounter stuff that stuck out as something he probably should have worked on a bit more. With this, I I just... Oh. But then by the time he gets to Death Becomes Her, you're like, see, now you get the darkness. Yeah. Now that's where he was like, what he was trying Did to do like here... It? Did you like Death Becomes Her? You know what? I haven't gone back to revisit it. Okay, when it was, I was disappointing a, when I When I was it. a kid, I loved it. Okay, so for me, it was very disappointing. Yeah. Very disappointing. I didn't think it worked. I thought it was, you know, it was a bunch of stuff here, a bunch of stuff there. I never revisited it. Um, but Yeah, I really liked it as a kid, and I don't think... You know, I think I picked it up at a yard sale, and I don't know if I watched it or not, but I have fond memories of it as a kid, for some reason. Well, there he's trying to go... I mean, the level of darkness he's trying to go through, right? But just sort of it's throwing super, sludge. It's very similar to this, except they stay alive, and it's preposterous. It's fantastical. You buy it more in that context, but it's still very distasteful. But he does have a message. But I think and, he, there's a message to it. There's that. But also, I think the character, just the actors themselves are more engaging and more likable. Yeah, like ironically, he, it's it's Kurt Russell's, I mean, spouse, live-in yeah. spouse in that picture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bruce Willis. <laughs> and Bruce Willis is great in that movie. Yeah, no, I'm talking he, he about played, Goldie Hawn. Yeah, no, I know. I yeah, understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm, I just, I'm, I'm jumping over yeah, yeah, Bruce yeah, yeah. Willis. Because sure, sure. he plays this schlub. Yeah. You know? Yeah, which he's funny, and it reminds me of an episode of the 85 Twilight Zone where he played a completely different character than what we were used to at the time. Yeah, because everyone yeah. was kind of playing against type at that point. Because I think yeah. he, Bruce Willis, had come off of Die Hard by then. Yeah. So, but, was, then, but Die Hard turned him into an action hero. 
So this is bringing him back out of there. It was already a star, though. It wasn't a movie star, but the Moonlighting was a show that was... He was brilliant in that show. No, I don't think many people who didn't see the show, Moonlighting, really understand how incredible it was as a riff on a certain style. Yeah. Uh, 1940s style, rapid-fire dialogue. And he was brilliant on the show. I mean, and all the stuff he'd have to do... Yeah, he was great. Anyway, so... Once again, going off on a tangent. Please that's okay, but that's that's the whole point of this. Uh, so anyway, I I, I I just think that it's like Death Becomes Her tonally, whether you like it or not, at least has a tone that's consistent Compared and is, this, yeah. is true to itself. Uh, what parts of Back to the Future Part Two don't don't work for you? Uh, it's it's just that it's tough because you see, when I got out of that film, and there's actually I actually. <laughs> For any audience members who want, who wish to see what I looked like and how much hair I had uh, at age 19, uh, I reviewed it from for a news show that I produced in in college, and I run out of the theater just like my mind blown, going it's 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 well this is you know, and we run clips and stuff. It was mind blowing, and I still think it's mind blowing in terms of what it achieves. It's just now kind of wrote because everybody, yeah, and I say it's still mind blowing if you see for the first time. But it's it's just it. it Is it the future stuff? Is it the stuff in the first act? Yeah, it's kind of like it's it's. I felt overall that there was a darkness to the film that was necessary because it was a second act and they were trying to play darkness. They were trying to say, we've got to go deeper, we've got to create a real problem. But there's stuff about the film that, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable in a way that I wish I wasn't being made to feel uncomfortable. And I also feel like the film doesn't, the film could snap along a bit better and it doesn't. It just editorially, I just get the sense that it could be a little bit better. Uh. Um, that being said, I just you know frequently in that film you just get the thrill of thrills, and and definitely one of the best for me was okay. Let's go back into the first movie. Ugh, I love that the whole like, that the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern version. Of yeah, it. it's that's I that's the part that blew my mind as a kid. Yeah, and and I loved, but I do think like the stuff that bothers me. It's just because for what it is. The first film feels like it's grounded in something, because it's really a story about like yeah, yeah. A, a kid hanging out with his parents yeah. at the same age, right? In contemporaries, and then the second one, it just goes into this what is now such a cartoon version of the future, or now the, our past, it's because set, it's past piece based movie. That's where we get to the late eighties, and a lot of these filmmakers started to make set piece based movies, and not in the sense that they were never con- they didn't have set pieces conceived. You know, but they're really now being driven by the yeah. products that they're creating. But even but two becomes like its its own parrot because now that it's like oh we gotta have a, we gotta do something different than we did with the skateboard scenes. Like well now it's gonna be hoverboards, right? You know now we gotta ramp up. We gotta take all the things that we loved about the first one and now ramp it up, ramp it up, and try to make it better by at least in terms of the plot, in terms of the stakes. In terms of something else, make it the Empire Strikes Back with the Back to the Future trilogy. You know, make sure his dad dies. Well, that's our way of getting out of the problem of not being able to get, you know, C- Crispin's Glover. contract. Yeah. Yeah. Make him upside down so we don't recognize his face too much. Yeah. They later got sued for that. I'm sure they did. Likeness <laughs> rights. Yeah. That's yeah. Like, I, think, I feel like they had the money to pay him. Yeah, they for had the, the money lawsuit. to pay him. Yeah. They probably, it was probably also a case of not wanting to work with him. But also, it's like, I thought it worked really nice that. That the George died, and I think I thought story wise, I'm like, I don't know what yeah, he gave them a problem, and they, you know, I don't know what the story would have been had George been alive. I don't know. I also don't know if they would have made the film a few years earlier. What the what the film might have been too. It was a long time for, especially for the '80s, where you kind of got stuff almost on demand. Like waiting for three years for an Indiana Jones film was a long time. Then you waited. Five years for an Indiana Jones film, but at that point, to wait for a sequel like that, to wait four years, but then four but and then, a half years. But they came, but the two and three came out within yeah, six, they six came months out right of up, each other, and right? that ended up being like they came out within six months of one another, and that that was just a mistake for you know of marketing because the third one did not do as well. But also, correct me if I'm wrong, they but had, I loved it. I loved they it. They hadn't announced that there was going to be a third one. 
until the end of the movie. No. Like, that was their no, way. No, 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 no. Did they? If, well, here's the thing. Maybe just as a kid, having reading, not known it. Yeah, yeah, no. And watching it going, oh my god, there's another okay. one that's coming okay. right away. So, uh, so, um, so uh, in, in, in the era BE, no, BI, before internet, uh, the only way to uh, figure this stuff out was fanzines. Uh, things like Starlog Magazine and Cine Fantastique and other things. Um, I read Starlog from the time yeah. I was, you know, 11. But I mean, the general public didn't know. I'd say, sure, it's like if you were really, really oh, into But a lot of people stuff. there the first day did. They right. did. A lot of people there the first day read that magazine. At that point, it had gotten, it was pretty main, a mainstream oh, okay. thing to know about science fiction. So, or to know about science fiction, ask films or things, especially that. People knew they were shooting two and three back, back to back. back. They did. But there were the general public got pissed off when they saw that for sure there was a cliffhanger, which is probably what you're getting at. And then it's like, ah, oh, I don't want to cut back for another movie. I want to see the movie now. I paid my money to see the movie. They gave you a trailer at the end of the movie. It was yeah, great. they gave you a trailer, which is awesome. And you know, and also not just a trailer, but the promise of a fun movie, a western, a western, and a you know, and an amazing kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah. Ugh. I the whole thing. It's interesting. It's like because um, I think when I was a kid, two was my favorite for sure. Just because I loved that they went to the. I loved how much was going on. Yeah. And then, but now that when as you know as an adult and I, as I rewatch these things, I definitely don't rewatch two and three the way I rewatch one still. Uh, and and three I think holds up probably structurally better because it's basically just. A remake of one, but in the old west. Yeah, but and, and but with characters who have matured, and, and I mean, it's 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 great. I mean, three is three is great. Three is wonderful. Three three is amazing. One thing I do like, I should mention that in used cars, the guy who plays the lawyer is Joseph P. Flaherty. Yeah, Joe Flaherty, Joe Flaherty. From, from you know, and we have Michael McKean. CTV, and Joe Flaherty is the guy who shows up. Are you Marty McFly? Yeah. <laughs> oh, right! At the end of... Yeah, yeah, he's a Western the Union of, guy. Uh, Back to the Future yeah, 2. Yeah, I forgot that was Joe. I was told to meet you at this exact place at this exact time. Yeah. We all we all took a bet about you. Guess I lost. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it was funny. So here's the thing that I just thought, especially when you talk about like the, getting back... I love that moment in the movie. Like, I love that moment Same. where it realizes that... I just got to say, I, I just was ecstatic. One of those moments in the film where they made that leap where it's like, what? Doc... He's alive. He's alive. <laughs> what you know? What? Is there anything I can? Is there anything I can do? Anything I can help? No. There's only one man who can help me. Bang! So Back good. The clock tower. Like I just can't. Like that was the level of leap that no other filmmaker was making at the time. And then that's what, and then getting to see the ending of the first movie again, and then we hold. Yeah. And we then, hold, and then he comes around the corner, and it's like, oh my god! It's like that's what you would have got if you'd held on to the end of the first movie. It's so good. And this is where the fusion of of that kind of you know also the Joe the Joe Flaherty character, that kind of character with a story of his own. Yeah. Being kind of like this is the small character with a small role to but play you get in a this very big story. Yeah. It sort of goes comes back to used cards where they hadn't figured out no. how to use those we characters. We also got yet. Marty McFly's sister in this yeah, movie. Yeah, is, yeah. is it one of the drivers yeah, yeah. Wendy Joe Sper- Miss she's credited as Miss Wendy Joe Sperber. Hilarious. I don't know what that's about. So the other thing that just made me think of when we were talking with Joe and, and I mentioned Michael McKean is yeah. there's this Squiggy there's this throwaway joke though with with the with the heart with the heart he made and I'm, like, and I'm like I sat there thinking to myself when they did use they that? write that for the characters because they say we need some sort of bit <laughs> like why what did they do like that? what a weird yeah. thing that it's just he made his own heart like this young healthy looking person yeah. has made his own um, yeah. heart thing what is it called what do you say yeah it's a it's a pacemaker pacemaker. For bits that he got from Radio Shack or something, like it just—it shows up in the middle of the film. It's there, and you're and expecting it's gone. it to be used at the end of the movie. That he's gonna have to plug himself into something. Yeah, and it's just good, but it's gone. It's such a, <laughs> but it's not even just like the joke isn't just oh, oh just oh yeah no I just made a pacemaker visual cut to something else. I think they actually drag it on. I think it's, it's meant to prove that they can hack into the White House's correspondence feed. Yeah, fine, but but it but it would have worked well just to kind of like ha. No, just kidding. But we can really do it. You know, like it was. Ah, come on. None of the lo- there's there's it just no doesn't work. There's yeah. no logic in this movie that makes sense at all under any scrutiny. But it's supposed to. 
it's supposed to be, you're supposed to buy it. But, but then again, once again, her, her reaction, female leads reaction at the end of the picture, you know, it's everything. It's like, dad, you know. There's no consequences to any actions through the entire movie either. And, and the, and the label. I kept thinking. I kept thinking. So her dad dies in the movie because yeah, the dead body is wild. By the, right, the guy, the, the his, his brother across the way sends this race car driver who works for them as a mechanic, and 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 the Jack Warden good guy version. Uh, he dies, but he holds on. He's got this sort of label, which which was on the, this driver that proves that it came from his bad yeah. brother's lot. So that's all it's used for. Use the, yeah, it's all it's used for. And I kept thinking to myself, oh, they're going to just use that. Which at some point now we're going to get. I just looked. At, I didn't look at my watch, but as I felt the film concluding, and all the cops running over that, I thought, okay, you know, something's going to happen. Nope. Well, I didn't think they could because by the time he buried him in the back, it's like now they've. Well, and, now and he even said something. it's like they're going to say it's a heart attack. It's an opening cut shit. Yeah, opening cut shut case. <laughs> So I think they Sorry, just... you're saying shit because they used the word so much in the film so yeah. deliberately, yeah, that we're now talking about them. But, uh, wow, it's, uh, yeah, the whole nothing. No character is, like, making a smart choice. No choices make any sense. And no no things they do have any consequences. It feels, it totally feels like something written quickly, sitting in a back drawer that almost a first, doesn't quite feel like a first draft, but it almost feels like a first draft. You know, it it feels like an excuse to get the film made, but by these guys, but that just like just with no, like I just got you just. It's got almost like it makes sense what you're what you were saying, but it's like you think he was maybe pitching Back to the Future this time. It's almost like he's like he had Back to the Future, and people are like, well, we don't think you're ready for that. But what else do you got? And he's like, well, I got this thing I've been playing with about. These rival brothers that you want to use car lot. It's got this great chase at the end. And he mentions all the set pieces. They're like, great. We'll give you money for that. And then he had to go off and, and, and turn out the script. Now, the, the, the other thing that makes sense about this is that the huge amount of talent. This would have been shot if this came out in 1980. I don't know what time in 1980. And Michael Kahn's the editor. Yeah, Michael Kahn's the editor. Well, that was Spielberg's, Spielberg's editor Spielberg's, for Spielberg's, those who don't know. Yeah, I mean, that would have been Spielberg saying... You know, you should take Michael Kahn because he's really great and he'll help you. Or Spielberg watching on the data is going, oh, Michael, can you fucking do anything with this? Well, that's the thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's a save, you know, or, or take it over. You know, I mean, even the score isn't quite right for me, but there's so little of it. I, I knew Patrick Williams, who did the, did the music for this film. Um, that John's like cousin from. <laughs> no, they're not related at all. And Patrick's a wonderful guy, wonderful guy. But yeah, he didn't do that many movies. He did a lot of uh, TV. Mm. Uh, but uh, but he could create wonderful feeling in orchestral pieces. I should say for anyone listening to music, like, this Patrick Williams guy didn't really contribute anything. You know what? I for me he didn't, but I but I know what he can do, and he also know he was a yeah swell guy. Anyhow, point is, uh, uh, we were talking just before about no before Spielberg. We were talking about okay. Here's this is what I wanted to say: talent. Talent at this point was superseding time with writing and script and picking the right things to do. This was happening a lot in the 80s. It would continue to happen a lot. It would happen a lot, not just with any films, but particularly with this group of filmmakers. It would happen with Amblin Entertainment. I don't know if you've ever seen The Money Pit. Oh, yeah. or, Or, you know, I mean, there were other really, really unfunny things that they tried to make that were funny. Goonies, which I love for many reasons, is never a film I would call, I would say, is a wonderful is a is a wonderfully written, amazing movie on that level. It 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 could have been a lot better. Um but at the time I was willing to accept it because blasphemy for me, but you continue. Well no that's the thing. You gotta realize I'm talking about things in context at the time. Sure. I loved the Goonies. Please don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved the Goonies. I loved it when I saw it. I was here. I'm dating myself again. I was 15 when I saw that movie. Perfect. Yeah, loved it. Don't get me wrong. So I'm still saying though that there was an issue in Charles script. There was a there, there was this new generation of filmmakers at the time who were capable of creating fantastic worlds thanks to new technology and their dexterity with it and their youth and their being in touch with people generally. 
although I don't know anyone was ever in touch with anyone on this film we saw tonight. Yeah. But uh, people like Joe Dante, others, um, many of them made very good films, but a lot of them, the script was half-baked. I got that feeling with this. I got the feeling that they were relying on talent, the talent that wasn't necessarily involved in writing. They were, you know, gathering... You know, you got Lenny and Squiggy showing up. I didn't know Lenny and Squiggy were in this movie. Lenny and Squiggy, Frank, yeah, yeah, yeah. Laverne and Shirley, and, you know, David Lander and, and Michael McKean, who show up for five seconds in, in 1941 um, as well. But I didn't know they were, as a team, I didn't know they'd done any other, any other movies. Uh, but, you know, you got to write bits for them because the audiences were expecting bits for these kids, for these guys. I just got the impression that some of those things were done and some of them weren't. Like, you look at the Jack Warden character. I don't... Jack Warden had just appeared in... I think, did he win the Oscar for Heaven Can Wait as his best supporting actor? He was in that, I believe. In the late 70s. He was in... Um, that was that 78. That was... And he was also in... Um, uh, what's the... Uh, what am I thinking? Shampoo? Is mm-hmm. it Shampoo I'm thinking of? I haven't seen Shampoo. I, I, I picked up the Criterion recently, but I still haven't watched it. I'm trying to remember if it was Shampoo or another film. Anyway, Jack Warden did not have to make this movie. Why did Jack Warden make this movie? He has to play two characters. That's fun. For sure. But beyond that, are they likable at all? Does he... Spielberg probably was like... Zemeckis is an up-and-comer. It's like, yeah, sure. It's I know great. that. I know all that. But I'm yeah. saying, you know, like... Wh- you gotta yeah. ask what the you know what the actors most of the actors had a reason to make the film. I don't know. I mean, it's all about deals. I know that, but we're just talking about the result here. We're not talking about the fact that we don't know how the movies how the movies get made. It's just ugh. yeah. No, but it'd be interesting to to go back and see how the how the how the this film got put together and and the whys and the, I, I'm it's almost it's baffling. And it, it, I'm curious. I kind of want to. Re- I think I will do a little bit of a deep dive and read up a little bit more on it. Not too much, but just enough to just like help me sleep tonight. Because <laughs> I got to know some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a good question. It's a good question. Um, I, I do often wish that the, that Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis would work together again in a major way, um, but. I have strong doubts that Bob Gale hasn't gotten some check to read every script Zemeckis has, you know, directed and so, and give notes on it in some way because those guys couldn't just kind of, you know, split off and I mean they are there's they were like the Simon and Garfunkel of but without the yeah without the the issues you know yeah of screenwriting like their accomplishments just you know you get, you have to look at things like. The Amazing Stories, you know, series, which didn't have a lot of amazing things, but they were heavily involved in that. They're heavily involved in just about everything coming out of, out of Amblin. And I think, you know, even here, even the most distasteful plot devices are still economically and often brilliantly brought off, uh, with the exception of <laughs> the pacemaker joke Ugh. and a number of others. But, they, but we almost feel like that's probably something Michael McKean came up with. Probably. It's something that you... My point being that they really... There's what made them special, I think, as screenwriters and as a sort of filmmaking team. There's Some of it's definitely evidenced here. It's just the package is so ill-considered at times. It's really hard to stomach. Yeah, I mean, what is what has he done, really? Bob Gale? I, did he just retire? Did he just get out of the game? We probably could after the <laughs> after the run. Uh, I think he got. He actually got into be, prior to. I think in the nineties he was involved in some sort of choose your own path kind of thing, but with video. Like, yeah, like he, he doesn't have a lot of credits past not movie credits. The eighties, but, but even TV, it's like it's like Back to the Future, The Ride, this movie called Trespass in ninety two. He wrote. Yeah, uh, he. No, he's just creator for it. I was gonna say, uh, Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, uh, and then some video games. He wrote some video games in the nineties. Yeah, and Bordello of Blood. He did the story for the Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, I don't. And I don't, that's and then he did a movie called Interstate sixty in the two thousand. Yeah, it's the only movie he directed, I believe. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah, really. He. Uh, that's all. I mean, he's just cashing them royalty checks. Yeah, and I mean, you got to imagine they've been 
they'd still be quite substantial because the Back to the Future property, I don't think it's ever really not, you know, generated. There's got to be a story there on why he just decided to... Sure. Why did, why did Zemeckis decide to do animation for like a decade? Well, he just got obsessed. He, he's obsessed with technology, you know? I know, but... I know. But the, but it's it was a definitely an error in judgment to chase it for that long. Yeah, and some of the stuff was Polar Express. I find to be creepy to watch. It was always an issue with that. Um, Beowulf was intriguing because it was action filled, but beyond that, nothing much. Um, yeah. I didn't see a Christmas Carol. I didn't bother after that. It was similar to because um, I just love that story, so I'll watch any iteration of it. Um, but it was very similar to Polar Express, where it just feels. Like the animation, it feels a bit wooden. It feel, doesn't. It feels glitchy in some weird way that doesn't feel human. Mm-hmm. So this that the mocap thing just didn't didn't work for for me. It was the same issue on that, and it felt cold and impersonal, and uh, yeah, it felt like an unfinished technology at the time. I love Castaway. Like I mean, I yeah, Castaway's great. I there may have been one moment that I didn't, one or two moments that I didn't like, but I thought it was a wonderful film and a really great like i mean just the sense sense of feeling of being there with him was so strong um you know after you're through the plane crash and that wonderful run-on shot of him alone in the ocean and the way that's revealed and everything about it so cinematic what lies beneath really did feel like a filler picture to me sure i'm sure he was just bored and needed to do something that was simple that he could get in and out of yeah yeah i earned it at that point Listen, I'd say, I think, you know, final thoughts for me on this is that it's like, I think it was a necessary film to get out of his system so he could go on to become and, and do the great work that he went on to do. And, uh, and I hope there's still something left in that. I feel like he's kind of dipped down and he's just experimenting and playing around, but I'd love to see him do another great film. Oh, I think. I know he's got it in him. Oh, yeah. I think there's no question he has it in him. I, I think there's no question that, you know, when he did Flight and I saw Flight, I went, well, Flight's not the story I would have expected from him, but I quite liked it. Um, I still think he's just a super talented director. I think the real issue with some directors is they lose touch of the times and they don't, and they start to, you know, kind of create characters and behaviors and situations that are very out of touch with those times and their films become irrelevant not just based on what the story is but how they're telling the story Zemeckis still has quite apart from his affectation with technology he still has uh, his own version of uh, Quarter Pounder uh, Big Mac Call It What You Will McDonald's the McDonald's filmmaking technique that he's attempted to implore all these years they're really just sort of special and unique and I mean I was massive Zemeckis fan and still am of the things I think are wonderful. He has it's just his films breathe wonderfully when they're great. And they're just, they go to soar so far above other stuff. Uh, so yeah, I don't think that ever leaves you. I think, you know, it's now a material issue. Yeah. So there you have it. So if you're looking to watch a great filmmaker stumbling through something, check out used cars. Cause it's Zemeckis's lemon. God. <laughs> well, thanks for coming over. Oh, no worries, man. Anytime. Let's all go to the. Thanks for joining us for Used Cars. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter at LonJeremy and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.